Good morning. morning. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Come and Reason Sabbath School. Uh, My name is Lori Atkins. I'm filling in for Dr. Tim Jennings today. I want to welcome you. We got lots of visitors today. We've had a bunch of visitors the last couple of weeks. We want to make sure to welcome them. We're so happy to see new faces here in this class and online. Um, Dr. Jennings is right now across the pond. He is in Oslo, Norway. Speaking right now at something called Health Congress 2019, Uh, he's one of two presenters there, and this is a gathering that was organized by the Norwegian Seventh-day Adventist Health Workers Associations, and there are sessions and workshops scheduled all weekend, started yesterday, and it goes through part of the day tomorrow. Also, if you follow us on social media, you saw an announcement this week about just a little tweak, a little upgrade to our website, an enhancement really. The website's already incredible, but now it's even better. In fact, one of our Facebook followers just yesterday gave us a recommendation, and it was very simple. He just declared, it's the best website ever. And I agree. So another follower left this note. She said, it is like a drink of refreshing water to a dry, parched soul. I am thankful that there is no fear of reasoning out and searching scripture because the design laws of our creator always point to a loving God. I agree with that one too. So anyway, we added some additional navigation right to the front uh, page on comeandreason.com and it's specifically for folks who are new to come and reason. They may be unfamiliar with the concepts or what we focus on in this ministry or they might just be overwhelmed by the depth and breadth of the content. There's a ton of content on our website. Um, they don't know where to start. So right on the front page, there's a big red button that says, New to Come and Reason, start here. <laughs> Very simple. This button then will take users to a page that explains our goal of revealing the truth about God's kingdom of love and assisting you in developing your own critical reasoning skills in line with God's invitation for us to come and reason together. Then it goes through several short blurbs. There's one on the importance of developing by practice discernment skills, critical thinking skills, not just learning all the right answers so that you pass your test, but actually learning how to work math problems. I'm going to start class with prayer. Father, uh, in this month of Thanksgiving and our focus on gratitude, we're just so grateful for the gift of your son and the gift of this class and this ministry. And uh, we pray that you would would continue to bless this class. We pray for Dr. Jennings and Christy and Russell who are abroad. We pray that um, the folks they're speaking to would have open hearts, open minds, and that that seminar would go well, that you would give them traveling mercies. We want to pray for Tim's uncle, Peggy's brother, Harry, and his wife, Glenda. Um, we pray that your will would be done. In, in her health struggles, um, we pray for your will and your comfort and your strength and your encouragement for that family. Um, bless us here today. Send your spirit to, uh, to just enlighten our hearts, enlighten our minds, and, and show us what we need to learn about you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today um, we're studying Lesson 9 in our fourth quarter entitled Ezra and Nehemiah. This week's lesson is trials, tribulations, and lists. Just like the last time I taught this subject matter, which wasn't too long ago, the book Prophets and Kings is an amazing resource. We're talking about chapters 45 through 50-ish. Just like the last time I taught, if I end up without enough material here, I'll probably just end up reading those chapters to you at the end because they're they're that profound. But I have all my participators here today, so I don't think that's going to be necessary. What about thoughts about this week's lesson? Did anybody read uh, the recommended chapters in Ezra and Nehemiah? If you did, then you went through some lists and some lineages, some genealogies of the Babylonian exiles who returned to rebuild Jerusalem. What do you think about these and other lists of genealogies and ancestries that are listed in the Bible? I think they're boring, but probably necessary. Well, and that's my question. When you're studying, when you're studying scripture, do you usually skip over these, or do you really dig in? Skip it. It's hard, right? 
Well, so we've talked at length in this in this class about the Bible not only being an accurate account of actual historical events. These are real people's lives and stories and experiences. But the fact that it also serves this much larger pur- purpose and provides many profound object lessons. So, there are seven, ironically, of these genealogy and ancestry lists in the Bible. Any thoughts as to why these particular lineages are singled out? Now I'm going to go over them with you, in case you don't know them. The first one is in Genesis 4 and 5. And it's a written account of Adam's family line all the way from Adam to Noah. The second list is in Genesis 10. And it, in my Bible, the, the kind of the subtitle is called the Table of Nations. And that's an account of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their sons. So basically, we're getting up to the time of the flood, all the generations. And then after the flood, kind of the repopulating of the earth. The third one is in Numbers 26, and it's called the Second Census, or Descendants of the Twelve Tribes of Israel. Obviously, this one's important, because this this is the children of Israel. This is the nation that's supposed to take the message forward. And it's also, don't forget, where the, the promise of the Messiah had been targeted to this family. The fourth list is in Ruth 4, and that gives us the genealogy of David. Because now we're getting even more narrow from the Israelites down through the line of David is where the Messiah is promised. The fifth and the sixth one is in 1 Chronicles 1 through 14. And it gives historical records from Adam all the way to David. Including the genealogy of Saul, which I thought was interesting. And also it includes the royal line after the Babylonian exile. And that is the one that's also repeated in Nehemiah. That was in the the recommended reading for this week. And then the seventh and final one is in Matthew 1. And that gives the genealogy of Jesus all the way from Adam. Yes. I find the genealogies very interesting to deal with. Yeah. Because of the characteristic of the Hebrews that uh, they would not name the child the first day of birth they would see his characteristics yes. her characteristics and um, what really helped me to appreciate the genealogies is that there is a website um, I don't know in detail who puts it up but uh, they have a very strong Jewish background mm-hmm. and um, there are so many names that are in the genealogies of course, they haven't been able to identify or get them all out yet, right. all the names in the Bible. But uh, they break down in detail uh, what this name means and uh, give references that will relate to that name. And so, to me, it just opens up anew yes. uh, the wonderful stories of these individuals that we just tend to scan over exactly. genealogy. I mean, I scanned over them for many mm-hmm. number of decades <laughs> yeah. until I came across that website and then it made it possible for very quickly to identify and to follow the study of just that one name yeah. and find that each I can hardly wait to find more about each of those names. Yes. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I do have in here, <clears throat> I didn't have that, that level of detail, but I do have in here the mention of names. Because again, in our, in our society, Lori is not equivalent to my character. There's no ties, I can guarantee you. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what it means, but I'm pretty sure there's no ties. But back then, I mean... That, that was what it was all about. Like you said, they didn't name children until they got a feel for their personality, their character. And everywhere we're taught, we are taught to glorify God's name. We're supposed to reflect his character, um, not just speak his name. So thank you for that. That's interesting. Also, now the quarterly suggests that the reason these lists are included is to show that God notices the details, he notices the particulars, he knows all about our families, and he cares about them all. Obviously, that's true. 
Yes. Well, sometimes, too, in the naming of children today, knowing what the name means, we hope that it would have an influence on the children. Absolutely. I named ours Nathan, given to God, Matthew, chosen of God. Not that they made any difference, but, you know, I would throw that out every once in a while. Right. And you don't know? It might have. Agreed. So obviously God cares about our, the details. He cares about our families. But might there be a more significant reason why these specific lists of ancestry are recorded in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament? Notice the last one we see is in Matthew 1. We don't see any genealogies after that. So what was transpiring on the planet at this time? Was there a conflict going on that involved more than just human beings? Yes. Was trying to prevent Christ from being born. Absolutely. Yeah, there was no mystery here. Nobody had to figure out anything. Right there in the Garden of Eden, God promised a Redeemer. A Savior was coming, and Satan knew that mankind could not be saved without Jesus coming as a human being. And so after he heard about the crushed head and the bruised heel, did Satan just sit back as an observer, a spectator, kind of see what was going to happen? Or did he set about trying to thwart any such effort? In fact, he marshaled all his evil resources and poured all his evil energies into opposing Christ at every single juncture. Every point, and he ultimately tried to prevent God from fulfilling his plan to save this creation. How would he do that? Well, God needed some cooperative participants in order to carry out his plan, right? Folks who were willing, willing to work with him, had hearts that were open to the movements of the Spirit. Satan knew full well that Christ would not be born to a woman like Jezebel. So he set about hardening hearts, closing minds, turning them away from God. And at one point in history, he came this close to succeeding. There was only one righteous man left. A single human being on the planet remained who was willing to work with God. Can you imagine that? Of course, after God mercifully intervened with the flood, then the Messiah was, the promise was narrowed to Abraham's descendants. So Satan could narrow his focus to the Israelites and the Jews. And again, he almost succeeded. Seeing any parallels between this back and forth struggle and the great controversy and the lists of lineage that we looked at? Why are there no more of these lists recorded after the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Because salvation was opened up to the Gentiles at that point, because Jesus had fulfilled the mission. To the human race. And that's another reason, I think, for the list, too, is that the, the Jews believed they were children of Abraham, and you had, in fact, in, in some of the lists, it said these people came and they tried to Prove, they couldn't prove that, that they, they were Jews. Of the Jews. Yes. So they, they couldn't be one of the priests. They couldn't be purified as priests because they couldn't prove yes. theologically that they were uh, who they said they were. And so these lists became really important to the Jews to be like, I'm, I'm in. Yes. <laughs> you know? In the exclusive group. Yes. Galatians 3 says, if you're Christ, you're Abraham's seed. That's right. Yes. That's what. And we have multiple examples in the Old Testament of folks who were not of the seed of Abraham, who were not in that lineage, who never participated in temple services, but who experienced salvation. You think that, I'm I'm sure that was for an example. They didn't get it, but that was for the example. And you notice, even in these returnees, there were groups that could not prove they were Jews. But if they assimilated, if they participated in the customs and became part of the tribe. Like you said, they couldn't become priests, but they were accepted in. Somebody else had a comment. Yes, James. I don't know about lists one through six, but the seventh list has four unusual people in it, it being four women. Yes. And I don't know if that occurred in the others, but I don't think so. I don't think it did. I think it was all sons. Not just that they were, it wasn't unusual that they were just women, 
that some of them were from the outs from that that had assimilated. Yeah, Ruth. Rahab. Rahab. Yeah, intriguing. Why did he put those? I went, why did he list women? And what about the trials and the tribulations? That's in our title. What about the trials and tribulations experienced by this group of refugees and their ancestors? So they had been taken captive a bunch of years prior. Their homes, I mean, we're talking about the promised land. Their amazing temple had been destroyed and decimated. And now they were facing a dangerous journey back to Jerusalem and the monumental tasks of rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall, rebuilding their their city, their government, and their entire society. So there was joy in the homecoming, but these were some trying times. How many of you here have ever packed up and moved to a new neighborhood? (laughs) Or a new city? A new state? Even a new country? Maybe you were starting over, everything was unfamiliar. Maybe you moved to a place where you didn't know anybody. This was a part of the captive's journey that I could totally relate to, because I've done it a lot. More than 15 times in 15 years, I packed up and moved somewhere new. And it can be an ordeal. First couple times, oh, it's exciting, it's an adventure. (laughs) Then it becomes an ordeal, just grueling. So is there a purpose in our trials? Is there some work being done, some growth that can happen? One of the founders of our church wrote, This present life is our time of test and trial. God placed Adam and Eve in the beautiful garden of Eden, saying to them, Of every tree in the garden thou may freely eat. But there was one prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thou shalt not eat from it, for in the day that you eat, you will surely die. God wished to test and try the beings he had made, to see if they would be loyal and true to him. What do you think about that? Did God know what they were going to do? So he put this tree there to find out? Was God setting them up to fail? Why put trials and temptations in their way? Why not create a home without a tree, which would be used to tempt? Was God giving them an exam to test them, and if they pass, they live, and if they fail, too bad, death sentence? Is that what was happening? She goes on to say, our first parents, though created innocent and holy, were not placed beyond the possibility of wrongdoing. They were to enjoy communion with God and with the holy angels, but before they could be rendered eternally secure, their loyalty must be tested. At the very beginning of man's existence, a check was placed upon the desire for self-indulgence, the fatal passion that lay at the foundation of Satan's fall. The tree of knowledge, which stood near the tree of life in the midst of the garden, was to be a test of the obedience, faith, and love of our first parents. While permitted to eat freely of every other tree, they were forbidden to taste of this on pain of death. They were also to be exposed to the temptations of Satan, but if they endured the trial, they would finally be placed beyond his power to enjoy perpetual favor with God. So is there purpose to be gained by our enduring trials? Yes. It was all to develop their character. Just like Jesus, he was sinless. Yes. But he had to develop character. And so this was their developing character opportunity. And just like us, it says we were not placed beyond the possibility of wrongdoing. Neither was he. In his humanity. And so, like we've said, God can't create character. Character must be developed. And the only way it's developed is by the exercise of the will of a free sentient being. We have to choose to trust, to cooperate, and to refuse to cooperate with Satan 
in order for our brains to be rewired, our, our hearts and minds to be changed, and our characters to mature. We had a question in the back. I know for me and my daughter, moving here, you know, we've had huge opportunities to trust. Yes. <laughs> uh, because, you know, we've met some of you and you've been very loving and helpful to us. You know, of not knowing what, like, where do you get your haircut? Exactly. Those little things. But the thing, the thing I really want to mention is, in our process of getting to know God, our Father, our Dad, mm-hmm. it's in that it's it's through these different trials that we're we're going through that that we're you know each each of our needs that we have we're looking to Him. Yes to supply those needs. And when he does, you know, answer a prayer and and this crisis is over, then we go on to the next crisis, a new level. And we go to on on a new level. But each one, it's a process of learning, yeah, he took care of us over here. And look look at all of these miracles he did to get us where we are right now. And it gives us, it gives us courage. Mm -hmm in faith to go on to this new crisis. I just wish that each new crisis didn't have to be like the first one. You know, it's like you start all over. Oh, we're fixing to talk about that. All over. Exactly. Learning now, okay, we're going to trust them in this, except it's a new level of crisis. So it's a new level of trust that we're getting to. And all of it, step by step, we are learning... To know, yeah. to know that he's going to take care of us, to know he's going to supply our needs. And he does. He never fails us. Never fails. And it's not blind faith. That's evidence-based faith because we're building that book of evidence. And you know what else it gives us? It gives us our story. It gives us a story that you just told. So that we can tell others, this is the greater things that we will do than even the disciples saw Christ do. Because nobody else has the story. Nobody else knows what it was like to be blind and now see, or to be lost and now found. To be corrupt and terminal and now be redeemed and healed. This is our story of encouragement to other people who, who are wondering, does God exist? It's one of the best evidences that God exists. We had more, more comments. Yes. I think the trials and tribulations are um, in, in large picture, general terms, really to give us confidence that there are design laws. Yes. They work. 100% predictable. We just have to pay attention. Yeah. Going back to the statement you read, um, something about God that made us so that we are capable of, of falling or whatever, that we weren't beyond... What, I mean, if you look at the reasons why that is, that's how we're designed to develop character. Yes. If we were developed any other way, there would be no potential. It would be set. It would. It's designed how we're... We're designed to develop character. It's also... The way we're designed so that we can love. Because if it were any other way, there would be no love. Some people look at that as very arbitrary and manipulative. And yeah. Whatnot. But it's, it's the way we're designed to be. And if it was any other way, we could not develop. No, we would be robots. We would be automatons. And that, to me, is the difference between the imperial law perspective and the design law perspective. Because under the imperial law perspective, it does sound very arbitrary. And why would he do that? What a cruel God. Yes? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It comes at through the adversities and such. And, and uh, compassion. Right. Could we even have compassion if we didn't go through we couldn't. something ourselves? And I was going to ask anybody of you that have been through trying experiences like I said not only does it give you your story but I find it does give you an, a level of empathy and compassion that you would not have had otherwise particularly in those specific areas um, I minister right now in life after divorce class 
that I, I would have no credibility and no insight into had I not been through it. And it does make you empathetic on another level with people who are going through something similar, and it even draws you to them. It seems like you're magnets for, for people with similar experiences. It makes me think of uh, what John the Baptist said when the rulers came to ask him questions. He said, you know, I baptize you with water. He comes will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We forget the and with fire part. We forget that finding the Levites may not be a pleasant experience, but it requires purification to get the dross out of us, to get us fully an open, trusting God and no other. And I just wanted to point out one other thing. When, When God said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. It's not if you eat it. That's correct. Even, even embedded in this statement is the statement that I know you're going to do this. Yes, and this is what's going to happen. Yeah. When you do it, this is going to happen. Interesting. In talking about various experiences of family and whatnot, my father went through World War II, you know, D-Day and Battle of the Bulge and all that sort of stuff, etc. And he was very traumatized by that. How could you not be? When he was older, his... Free time was in volunteering and part of the veterans of foreign wars and that sort of stuff. And I couldn't understand that at first because I thought this was so painful to him. How could he then... But he had fellow people who had lived the same experience and they were able to help each other. Exactly. And I'm sure it was very cathartic. And from my experience in dealing, especially in that area... A lot of times, it it wasn't that they were being therapists. A lot of times, they never even talked about it. But they knew, looking in each other's eyes, that they had both experienced the same horrors. They both knew that it was too horrific to recount, but they just knew, and it was helpful. Yeah. That's a connection, though. That's the human connection, and that's when we talk about quantum entanglement and... String theory, which, please, I don't know anything about that other than what I've read. But it's a real thing. We are all literally connected on on those wavelengths for that reason. All right, so <clears throat> I want to get to, oh, so yes, what Linda said, testing. What are the purposes? When a person gets sick and goes to the doctor and they don't know what's wrong with them, what do they typically do? Run a bunch of tests. Why? They want to uncover the problem. They want to expose it, uncover the defect, figure out what's wrong so that once you make an accurate diagnosis, you can plan an accurate treatment. The doctor doesn't do this to humiliate, embarrass, ridicule, punish, harass, or criticize the patient. The doctor does it in order to help uncover the problem and ultimately heal the patient. The first reason tests come is in order to help us know how sick we are and what areas of our lives and character need some, some work, some development. When a person tests their mettle, you ever heard that saying? What does that mean? Test how strong they are. Yes. When a person has practiced or studied or prepared for anything, Piano recital, Olympic competition, biology test, pilot instruction, driver's education. Does there ever come a time when they are, have to put their training, education, and practice to the test? Why? Is it in order for them to fail or achieve? Or is it to solidify into their character, into their personhood, what they have been working toward? Tests come as a mean of helping us overcome our defects of character. When a person who has struggled with addictions gets into rehab, they're detoxed, they go to 12-step meetings, they avoid places where substance is used, but eventually, in order to truly be free, one day they're going to be faced again with the opportunity to use, and they'll be tested. Will they choose to say no and turn away and exercise the power of their will to reach out for help? Or will they surrender to the temptation? God allows tests to come as a means of freeing us from our defects of character. 
a refining, purifying process is going on among the people of God. And the Lord of hosts has set his hand to this work. This process is most trying to the soul, but it is necessary in order that defilement may be removed. Trials are essential in order that we may be brought close to our Heavenly Father in submission to his will, that we may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The Lord brings his children over the same ground again and again. How many here have been brought over the same ground again and again? Increasing the pressure until perfect humility fills the mind and the character is transformed. Then they are victorious over self and in harmony with Christ and the spirit of heaven. But you know, I can't help but think of Job Mm -hmm. and all this. Why was he tested the way he was? Not because... To perfect his character. No. But it was to prove a point to the universe that he was a faithful person. Does that happen today? I think. Does God have people in the world today that he allows to be tested beyond normal? Don't you hope that somewhere somebody's saying, consider my servant Tina? I mean, what a thing to be said about, about your character. And that we will represent him rightly if that's ever the case. Yeah, I think that happens. I do. So anybody else's brains firing at that last quote? Do any specific texts come to mind that describe this very process? What about Psalm 23? I'm going to read it here, amplified by Dr. Jennings. He's gone over this in class before and it's amazing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So God is watching out for me. I don't need to worry about where my support will come from. He will provide all my soul needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Which means he will first provide soul nurturance, support, sustenance to strengthen me and prepare me. What's he preparing me for? He restores my soul. That means he will heal my inner man, cleanse my conscience and restore my individuality. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. He will lead me in the path which restores me to righteousness, the path that makes me right inside, just like he originally intended, so that he and his ways and his character will be glorified in my life. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This is the ground. He then, after providing for me, strengthening me, cleansing my conscience, removing my guilt, and restoring my individuality, leads me in the path to ultimate righteousness, the path which is through the valley that feels like I'm going to die, the valley in which self surrenders and is crucified, and the valley which frees me from the domination of fear and selfishness. Your rod and staff comfort me. He comforts me with his shepherd's rod and staff, which are used by the shepherd to beat back my attackers and lift me out of the ditch when I fall. Isn't this a beautiful, accurate description of conversion? And is this typically a one-time event? Or like we talked about, not one and done. It is an iterative process of growing and maturing This is the Lord bringing his children over the same ground again and again. Go ahead, Ken. One of the best sermons I ever heard in my whole life was uh, Roger Kuhn um, with a sermon at Cold Park Church entitled The Great Circle Route. And he likened it to the Muslims finding a point toward Mecca and praying toward that direction. And you know, he went over this whole idea that we, that our characters are perfected. And of course, that, you know, can be a term of either semantics or of, of uh, it can be problematic, let's put it that way, because people think that they have to do things in a certain ritualistic way or a certain contractual way in order to really get to the point they should be. Mm-hmm. 
That whole sermon makes more sense to me now than it ever did before because of the design law perspective and paradigm that we work on. And, and I feel like even though there, there may be moments of either failure or near failure, when we have gotten to the point that our spiritual growth is such that we can come almost face to face with with something that would definitely have taken us down in, in the past. Yeah. It's no longer even a threat. And and we can we can get you know that's that's what the Lord provides. Yeah. He provides a way out that in the beginning, you never would have thought this would be your way out. Or that you would survive. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Again, don't get mixed up with this being behavior related. Because a lot of people mix that up when we're talking about developing a perfect character or growing or being healed in heart, mind, and character. We're not talking about perfect behavior. By the way, I tried to I tried to find a recording of that sermon later on. I even talked to Dr. Ken himself, and I said, "Do you have it?" <laughs> and he said, "No, I just have it in my file as a sermon, you know." And so I was really disappointed that I couldn't find that again. But, you can get him to publish it. Oh, uh-huh. well, he's dead now. <laughs> <laughs> Linda. Well, something back that had dawned on me, you know, I was reading this, and I. Come to find out, you know, in six verses of this original one, it's the plan of salvation, really. And I mm-hmm. thought, at first it says, oh, he leads me through the paths, and it's green grass, and it's tall, yeah. life beautiful. And then, all of a sudden, I noticed that he was talking about you, instead of he this, he that, he the other thing. And I thought, why is the, the person changed from the third to second person? Right. Why is it now not he, now it's you? At what point does it change to you? And it changes at the verse that says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And ever after that, it's referring to you, 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 instead of he, he, he. Mm. Those, very va- those very parts of life that we detest because they're <laughs> painful are the most valuable in relationship yes. to God. And they can teach us so much about God's dealing with us. You know, look what happened to us. We can understand why God has reacted the way he has in certain instances in the Bible. Yeah. And it's when our relationship should and can get even nearer and dearer than it ever was before because you are with me. Yeah. And he's leading us into that. It's not by chance. I mean, you've ever noticed that the Holy Spirit is the one that led Christ into the desert for temptation. Can we see why, why he did that? He had to go through this same process that we do. Teresa. Help me with this because my behavior interferes with my character being permitted. Oh, there's no question. I mean, you just said it's not about the behavior. It's not about perfecting behavior. I mean, I've struggled to explain this because it's, it's my experience daily. And it is Paul in Romans where he says... What am I doing? The very thing I don't want to do is what I end up doing. And the thing that I know I should be doing, I don't do, and vice versa. And who can save me from this wretched, sinful body? Thank God. Christ can. So, I mean, I think it is about a heart-mind attitude. So even when our behavior interferes with our character growth or fails us or isn't what we wanted it to be. Again, Tim uses the example. If you wanted to decide to brush your teeth at night using a different hand or going a different route through your teeth than what you normally do, if you never thought about that and you tried it, you would never do that. Your reflex would be to do your conditioned, habitual way of brushing your teeth. And if you realized it midway through the brush and thought, oh, dang it, I, should, I wanted to do it different this time, you, you wouldn't scold yourself or give up or say, oh, I'm never trying that again. I'll never make it. You know what I'm saying? We have 
neuropathways. I have neuropathways that are deep valleys, crevices that are going to take a lot of time to to turn and to change and to be some synapses that need to regrow in different directions. And it's it's a work of a lifetime, I think. Um, and if we read the new paradigm, it's a work of beyond a lifetime. If we are not alive by the time Christ comes, he says he will, con- he's, the good work he began in you, he's going to com- continue until the day he comes. So those bits of character that were not perfected during our life, if we trust him and we give him the keys and the, the keys to unlock, he's going to continue refining that and removing those defects of character until he comes. And behaviors are symptoms. Behaviors are symptoms yeah. of a disease of heart. Or Ebola or something. Exactly. One person might be spitting up blood, another person might have fever, another person yes. might be coughing or unconscious. They're all symptoms. We, we say, oh, but I only cough up blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have a fever. Yes. <laughs> right. You know, but basically, we're all dying of this, and we just have different symptoms of it. Yes. We disdain others with different symptoms. Absolutely. All the symptoms are the same thing. You know, we're all dying of that. And so behaviors, I think, are, are more of the symptoms of what we've got. Yeah. And the more we allow Christ in to do his work, the, the more he can reroute our, mm-hmm. our um, tendencies and make it able to stand up against the route that we've yes. consistently put in there and the negative route you have to put in on the good side. The positive, yeah. I think of, when I think in prayer, I think of, you know, if Jesus so kindly says, I stand at the door and knock, he doesn't bang the door <laughs> in and come in. He, he just nicely knocks. If you hear my voice, I'll not only come in, but I'll suck with you. Yes. I will take time with you. I'll bring the food. I'll bring the medicine. I'll bring the tool. Absolutely. Just let me in and let me work. And that's why I think Satan tries so desperately to get us to do anything but, but that. But build a relationship with right. Him. Anything to yes. read the Bible. Any, and even good things. Even good things. I like the statement that said, the enemy of the best is the good. The good. <laughs> it doesn't have to be evil. It just has to be busy enough yep. and interest us enough to distract to away from God, and that Satan knows that's where we uh, he can get us through one technique or another. Yeah, thank you. He knows connectedness. Absolutely, is how we are healed and how we're going to be one to trust. Thank you for that. I mean, I really do think, in my mind, this is one of the most insidious parts of the penal substitution theology infection is that it it removes. It keeps us from shifting from a legal, rules-based, behavior-based thought process to a design law and healing model. Because none of us don't understand that if you heal the disease, the symptoms will resolve. And so if you shift that modality to the sin problem, then obviously, if he's in our hearts, he's in our minds, and he's perfecting our character those behaviors that are learned and habitual are going to resolve. They will. But it's, I mean, I get it. It's every, it's the same ground over and over and over again. Yeah. Do we have, I thought I saw more hands, more comments. Yes. No. Okay. There's one more bit of this quote. Let me get back to it. The purification of God's people cannot be accomplished without suffering. That's binary. He passes us from one fire to another, testing our true worth. True grace is willing to be tried. If we are loath to be searched by the Lord, then our condition is one of peril. That was all from my life today. I saw this thing, and probably many of you did on Facebook, talking about, a, to just briefly summarize, when you know that silver is refined is when you can see your reflection in it. Correct. And so that um, I, I like that since it's, the Bible talks about refining as in silver. Mm-hmm. Because when you finally know you've ref- gotten all the dross out, when you can see your own reflection. Yeah. In it. And that's done in very hot fire. 
but carefully, apparently carefully monitored. Carefully monitored, carefully watched until the point when he can see his own reflection. That's how he knows when it's done. It is in mercy that the Lord reveals to men their hidden defects. He would have them critically examine the complicated emotions and motives of their own hearts and detect that which is wrong and modify their dispositions and refine their manners. God would have his servants become acquainted with their own hearts. Does that mean maybe dropping some denial and some rationalization and some deflection that, no, not me, in order to bring them a true knowledge of their condition, he permits the fire of affliction to assail them so that they may be purified. The trials of life are God's workmen to remove the impurities, infirmities, and roughness from our characters and fit them for the society of pure heavenly angels in glory. The fire will not consume us, but only remove the dross, and we shall come forth seven times purified, bearing the impress of the divine. Was the, was the fire that the Hebrews were thrown into, was it seven times hotter? Yes. Number. Um, because I think in that scenario, you have like an end-of-time event mm. put on for Nebuchadnezzar. Right. He really worked hard for Nebuchadnezzar, i got to say. He did. And you notice when the, when the Hebrews were thrown into the fire, only two things were destroyed. The ropes that bound them, the yeah. things that bound them were destroyed, and the people who threw them in. Right. The, the, the rest of them li- the, mm-hmm. they were fine. They didn't have any, even the smell. Singe, yeah. But the things that bound them were taken away. And the people who put them there right. were taken away. And what is it that binds us? What, what binds us here before we're healed? Our selfishness, our, our human nature, our character. So we need new characters. What else binds us? Fear. Fear, the root of selfishness. What about lies? What about the lies that we've believed about God, about how he operates, about who he is, about how he governs his universe, that teach us to be afraid of him, teach us not to trust him? Yes. In family, especially blended family situations, you have opportunities that come by once in a while that are like little windows where the the shades are open, (laughs) light comes in or something once in a while. We had kind of one of those moments last night talking with my daughter, stepdaughter, and um, she was saying that she appreciates some of the people in her life now that help her to be accountable. Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking that um, when we at least feel like we've reached some higher level of spirituality or we've we've, uh, come to understand things better, like in in the... uh, design, law, concept, or paradigm. We also have to be careful not to try to hold people accountable to levels that they're not fully exposed right. and or that they haven't had a, a time to learn. Because I'm, I'm just thinking that as we talk with people, you know, even if we feel like they want to be accountable, or they want to help us help them be accountable and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. It only takes a few words to destroy a relationship that might have taken years to build. And I mean, in, in five minutes' time or less, two minutes possibly, you could destroy a relationship that has taken years to build. So, you, you know, it's... It's a profound thought it know, is. that that when you're trying to share or trying to help someone, you gotta you gotta find that connectedness that Linda was talking mm-hmm. about with with God and so on. And in fact, it's probably not possible to find it unless you've had some connection with God. Correct, I agree. And I mean, it's for me, it is a consistent, constant prayer to the Holy Spirit to either tell me what to say or help me hold my tongue, which is my usual struggle. Because sometimes (laughs) it's not necessary to say anything. I can't imagine when that is, but sometimes I hear that you could just listen and be quiet. Anyway. 
Oh, I wanted to get a little bit to Sunday's lesson where it talked about the just, I don't know. We'll we'll do this real quick. Sunday's lesson talks about, um, again, you understand the the theft of the artifacts. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar stole the temple artifacts when he originally um, took the, the Israelites captive. And then this group that's coming back, part of the list wasn't just lineages and genealogies. It was an inventory and a list of the the artifacts that were being brought back. Um, and the, the quarterly says, I want to read this quote. This is in Sunday's lesson. It's a quote from Prophets and Kings, and it says, The history of nations speaks to us today. To every nation and to every individual, God has assigned a place in his great plan. Today, men and nations are being tested by the plummet in the hand of him who makes no mistake. All are, by their own choice, deciding their destiny. And God is overruling all for the accomplishment of his purposes. So, in the, the lesson asks... Looking at Daniel 5, talking about the story of Belshazzar, who is Nebuchadnezzar's son. Remember his his feast, his banquet, where he was kind of whooping it up with the temple artifacts. And there was some writing on the wall and things went poorly for him. The lesson asks what these texts teach us about the judgment upon Belshazzar. And in the teacher's quarterly, it says the listing of the vessels from the temple, the ones that were being brought back from Babylon, brings us back to the banquet of Belshazzar, who personally offends God by using these sacred items for his feast. So who was deciding Belshazzar's destiny that night? Belshazzar himself. How did he do that? By his choices. And does it matter what law lens you're looking through when you just when you figure out what was the judgment on him and who was responsible for it? Was God personally offended by him drinking out of the temple artifacts? Or was he heartbroken that Belshazzar was not coming to the place his father did, was not opening himself up to be used in his plan, which he could have been? He was heartbroken because he knew that he was sealing his own fate. When that's how that's how he treats us. We are we are causing our own destiny by our choices. Thanks very much for participating. I'm going to close with prayer. Father, um, we're so grateful for your love, and we're so grateful for the evidence that we have of you and how trustworthy you are and we pray that you would continue to to rewire our brains and to heal us in the inner man so that our symptoms resolve and so that what we splash onto other people is just an overflow of your love and grace and that's our prayer in jesus name amen Amen.